Welcome to the Talk Local Podcast, a weekly chat with business owners in Victoria, Vancouver, and throughout British Columbia to learn what they're doing to create stronger connections with local customers. The Talk Local Podcast is sponsored by Time to Get Online and hosted by Alan Ford. Hello and welcome to Talk Local, the podcast that puts you in touch with local entrepreneurs and offers insight into their experiences and wisdom. I'm your host, Alan Ford, and today we're pretty excited to have Neil Cropper with us. Neil, along with his wife, Joanne, built the Growley's Pet Food business in Langford, which markets healthy, raw pet food options to local dog and cat owners. But as they say, all good things must come to an end. So after 15 years in business, they decide to sell and get a taste of early retirement. I've invited Neil to talk to us a, a little bit about the process of preparing a business for sale. Hello and welcome, Neil, and congratulations. Good day to you. Thanks for uh, having me on. All right. So um, now you built the Growlies brand from the ground up and created a presence in a new market space. What made you choose this particular space? And how did you recognize the opportunity for a business? Well, I guess ultimately, um, it's interesting. Like most uh, small independent pet food retailers, we started with, a, it's a common story. We started with a sick dog. And uh, this was in late 2007, early 2008. So almost 15 years ago. Um, and we uh, had the biggest pet food recall ever undertaken in history at that same time, as we ended up with a very sick little puppy. And so all of the pet foods that we thought were good, healthy, um, uh, well-made foods for our dog um, were off the shelf because of melamine poisoning from with ingredients from China, um, killed more dogs and cats than you can imagine, tens of thousands uh, across North America. Um, and that melamine actually wasn't even originally created to, that melamine tainted product wasn't originally even created for the pet food marketplace. It just ended up in the pet food marketplace. It was meant to go to people. Um, and so with that happening, uh, my wife, having had previous experience as a vet tech trained at, out of Alberta, um, uh, she recommended we give fresh foods a try and, and you know, raw foods. Um, and that uh, started our journey. I was running a software company. She was working at the jail. Um, I didn't like her working at the jail. Uh, what we wanted for our puppy wasn't available in our neighborhood. So I was like, you know, I'm doing it. We're doing okay. There's this little space available. We drove by it for months with an empty and it was tiny little space. I swear it was six or 700 square feet. Didn't even have a bathroom. And, um, we shared the bathroom with a barber shop in the back and uh uh and and i was like quit the jail and we'll start a business and so we started bringing in fresh foods because we needed them in our neighborhood right so how did obviously this is a new marketplace then um or you're filling a gap in the marketplace so how did you how did you find uh clientele and then keep them uh with with this with this new kind of service that you were offering that nobody else was. Yeah. That just wasn't available in our neighborhood at all. Um, and there were some manufacturers in the neighborhood, but nobody retailing uh, the product that we needed to, to purchase for our, our pets and that we thought were important and met with our values. And so um, uh, 
as uh, how did we build the customer base just by being there and sticking to our values. Our values is because it was bootstrapped and we didn't have to go and meet quarterly uh, requirements of investors and pay back debt. Um, uh, we were lucky that way in that we could do it slow and build it up. And so for the first two years, I think Joanne did four or five days a week and I did two days a week, you know, uh, on weekends and we just kept it running. Um, and the way we got customers is by showing them that we're running this little business being led by a similar value set that they had, which is that, you know, fresh foods are better than processed foods. Right. So let's fast forward uh, to now. Uh, you guys have made the decision to sell. Um, what was the impetus for that? What, what made you decide to, that now 2021 is the time to sell? Well, as many entrepreneurs uh, could tell you, it's a pretty common story. Uh, we'd been 15, almost 15 years in, um, I think we'd had one vacation in 15 years. Uh, it, it takes a lot of time, effort, thought, brain space, uh, to run a business, um, and to be in it every day. And, um, and the one vacation we had was amazing and we loved it. And it taught us that, um, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, self-care is more important than um, uh, the, the business or the things you built. And so um, uh, we just decided eventually to focus on self-care as we were getting older and uh, we're in our 50s and um, uh, we had that opportunity and and um, it was just a matter of, hey, you know, let's, let's do some things for us in our life at this point. And uh, um, we were at the point with the business um, where it was a grow it or stow it. So you either grow the business and reinvest in it and do a second store or a third store or, uh, build out its delivery footprint, um, or you stow it, you just shut it down and it, every business in the whole wide world, even if they're a hundred years old, they, they're born, they live, they die um they they don't last forever um and we wouldn't necessarily mourn the end of the business either but it was very unique uh we were lucky in that we were able to stick to our values in a way that built a very unique business within the industry that it served um there it aren't a lot if any stores that were run in that same fashion within the independent pet food retail marketplace. And because of that, we knew that somebody would be interested um, in selling in buying that business in buying that concept. Um, it was a matter of the hard thing, of course, and it always is the hard thing is finding the pre people who are interested in that, right? who share that similar value set that you run your or use to guide your business. Right. So what did you do to uh, prepare for, for the sale? Well, I mean, we started years ago. So the first thing we did was we brought in a special type of accountant who uh, goes through all of your numbers and gives you an idea as to what the value of your business is. We used an organization called Malahat Valuation Group. Um, very good guys. They gave a comprehensive report 
on why they thought the business was what it was worth and how some of the ways with which we could improve the value of the business. Um, and while I didn't agree with everything because he doesn't know my segment, he knew business very well. And so that was a great investment to set us on the road to prepare the business for sale so that we could get the best value out of that business. Uh, so some of the things I, well, one of the things I wish I had done better, <laughs> because of course we can't always do the things we want to do because I necessarily, we don't always have the skill sets to do everything. And I, to be honest, I, I always have been the type of person who, when it's not my skill set, I bring in the person whose skill set that is. I want the right person for the right job, even if it's temporary. I want somebody who knows what they're doing to do it because I'm not, I would always rather pay a little more upfront than have to do something twice. And so I was never able to find anybody to codify the business in the way that I wanted. Um, so I wanted a policies, procedures, and uh, values or, or uh, uh, the reason why you were doing a policy, a procedure like these. Um, I wanted a manual because the better you codify your business, the more value there is in that anybody could come in and just do it because they have the manual on how to do that. And, and the more that's codified when somebody takes over, the more likely they are to stick to the values of the, the original intent behind the business. And so um, I always go back to the, how important the values are when making decisions and how um, strongly conveyed they are from the outset, because um, the, the story of, um, oh, what was it? Tylenol always comes up where they had the, the tampering. This was before everything was sealed and tamper evident and all that. And so they had a bunch of people in North America have a problem and their shareholders were like, well, you can't take things off the shelf. You can't stop selling Tylenol. Um, so uh, what are we going to do? And the CEO went back to the original values of the business and he said, we have to take it off all off the shelf. It cost them so much money. I can't even imagine that kind of money and that kind of loss. But the next quarter, and the next quarter and the next quarter, the reflection of their values it were indicated in the, the, the growth in sales. It became the most trusted brand in North America because they went back to their values. They stuck to their guns. They pulled everything off the shelf. They invented or took advantage of some technology around sealing and being tamper evident and and doing all the things that they needed to do to show their community that they were sticking to their values. And that, that's ultimately the thing that led us in all of the decisions we made. Um, and so when I was, we were looking at all those things, that was most important to me. So um, building the brand, building the values out within the brand so that they were clearly stated, not only to the community, but to anybody in the future. Um, so that decisions could be made that didn't hurt the brand brand long term that right. was that was important to me right so what would your advice be to business owners out there today who are maybe thinking about selling but they're afraid of the stress that it might cause is there anything that they can do to make it maybe not easier but less stressful 
oh man, it was hard. It was going through the due diligence and um, the accountants and um, and the inventory and uh, uh, you know, I mean, I guess just know that there's an end. It's hard. It was so hard. I mean, we were surprised at how tough that was, you know, during the due diligence when we were talking about selling and we hadn't, didn't have an agreement yet. And, um, uh, and, and we're going back and forth and back and forth and how hard that was. And there were many times where we were just ready to throw in the towel and walk away. And we had a good, easy negotiation in that we were getting what we needed and they were getting what they needed and and it was it was it, it, you know the stars aligned in our case where if it doesn't i can't imagine how hard that is oh my gosh but thankfully we did a whole bunch of legwork so when we set up what we called our data room where we were sharing all the data they needed to do their due diligence um, we were able to load it up with everything they needed because we had started years before that process to make sure we were enabled with the tools that they would need to assess the business and take it over eventually. Right. So how are you doing now that Growlies is in the rear view mirror? I mean, it must be a, a bit of a weight off your shoulders. Yeah, it's actually pretty amazing. Um, so it, it's been, I don't even think it's been two weeks, right? So no, it's not even been two weeks, whatever the, the uh -huh. fifth or something today. Uh, uh, yeah, the sixth. So we're not even. Um, and I, I have a hundred projects uh, that I want to do. So uh, you know, from from geeking out to, uh, with a Raspberry Pi and making a, a, a vinyl a record a vinyl record collection emulator with Spotify and my Sonos to. Um, uh, to gardening and playing in our backyard with some art and like, yeah, uh, we're gonna, I'm that and I have a few opportunities being presented to me in regards to some cult consulting work. So, but I'm not in a rush. I mean, that's the, a nice, I'm a, I'm in a lucky position. Um, and I'm not in a rush. So I'm going to see what happens. Great. So, so let's move on to, to Growlies a little bit. Let's, let's talk yeah. a little bit about the, I mean, it was your baby, right? I mean, you guys oh, yeah. built it from the ground up. So, so obviously, I mean, you're not directly connected anymore, but, but what are you hoping to see in the independent pet food retail space moving forward? That's an interesting space. It's, um, it's, so I think that independent pet food retail is the fastest growing segment of a fast growing segment. So if you look at... And I think that's possibly regional as well. I think there are more chains back east, Ontario, um, uh, 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 Atlantic Coast. Um, those are more chain oriented, you know. So you're going to get your your uh, your franchises or your large corporate chains of uh, uh, small retailers. Um, whereas back, uh, out west here, Alberta, BC, probably even Saskatchewan. Um, we're seeing a lot more independent pet food retail where they're not associated with a chain. And um, for me, the big thing that I learned when I was getting into this, because again, we had never been retailers. I had worked in human services. I had worked in financial services. I had worked in software, um, but I'd never worked in retail. 
ever. Joanne had worked at vet clinics. Joanne had worked at um, uh, nurseries, like, you know, for plants. Um, she had done a, a whole uh, bunch of other things, but she, retail was not her shtick. So it was interesting to try and do something that was completely new to both of us. And because of that, we didn't look at it the way a retailer would look at it. So we screwed everything up and did everything that they told us we couldn't do. And so they told us, we had to sell the biggest category in pet food and that's kibble. And so kibble would be the largest players would be Mars, you know, from Mars bar and, and Nestle. And so those are the two largest players in, in um, that industry. And uh, we were told by the people who sold to all the stores, you have to sell those products because people won't come to you if you don't sell those products. My problem though, because again, I'm an idiot when it came to retail, I've never done it before. This is 15 years ago. I have a lot more confidence in my perspective today than I did then. Um, but uh, they said, you have to sell this or you won't survive. And we said, but we can't sell this because it doesn't meet with our values. So the problem with that product, as far as we saw it was, there's nothing I buy from a company like Nestle or Mars Bar that has nutritional value that brings good things to my life. They're junk food. And so we were like, but we don't want to sell junk food. We want to be a health food store. It'd be like, you know, my local health food store selling Fruit Loops just doesn't fit. And for us, it didn't make sense because you could buy that product everywhere. I could buy that product at the pharmacy, at the corner store, at the grocery store, at the big box store. At, like everybody sells kibble. Why would I sell kibble? I mean, they're telling me I have to do this in order to survive as a company, that it's the only way that small independent pet food retail are able to survive is by carrying these big brands. But I can go buy that at Thrifties or Fairways or, or you know, Save-On or, or Walmart. I mean, I don't have to go to a small independent pet food retail. So I'm like, why would I sell those products that everybody sells? I want to sell products that everybody doesn't sell. Now, the category we chose being fresh foods required more infrastructure costs than a, a shelf for a bagged food. So we had to invest as we grew in, in freezer space because that was the category we chose was a, as our primary category was frozen food, whether cooked raw, dehydrated, freeze-dried, canned. It was always fed as moist. So that was our, our thing was it was always better than kibble and it was always um, uh, fed moist. And so with a primary focus on fresh foods, which in the case of dogs and cats, you know, 2 million species on the planet, one learned to cook, it wasn't the dog or cat. So we didn't really do as much cooked food. The, for them, it's raw. And raw food, actual raw food requires refrigeration. And so we had to invest in freezers as we grew over time. And so that's where our debt as we grew came. So your debt comes in your floor space because retail space is expensive and uh, infrastructure. And for us, it wasn't just shelves. And so that's, you know, I mean, just starting a business with just shelves is nice because then all you do is throw some stuff on a shelf. But when you're buying a, you know, a $25,000, $55,000 freezer, there's some debt. <laughs> right. 
So after finding your niche and getting things rolling, how did you build a loyal base of fans? Yeah, so the interesting thing uh, for us um, is because we were niche, uh, which I, I do believe a business needs to specialize in what they do. Um, I also am a firm believer that the internet is a great equalizer uh, between you and your larger competitors, whether that be a franchise type model competitor or a large competitor with deep pockets like a, you know, a, I don't know, a, a global entity like a Nestle or a Mars or, a, you know, because for us uh, in the pet food movement that th those were the guys who owned the marketplace. So often when you're an entrepreneur, you're going up against guys who own your marketplace, essentially. So if you were to start like a, you know, outside concrete board manufacturing company, the Hardy board would be your competitor and they're global and they're huge. But the internet is this great equalizer in that ultimately it gives them and you the same playing field and it allows you actually more ability to speak. So you have a better voice than the large companies do. And what I mean is you can say more, you can say it more frequently, and you can build your audience through ultimately your specialized knowledge base. And that comes over time. If you watch my earliest videos, so I, I did videos. I mean, that's what worked for my business. I was a talking head essentially, right? So I walk around the store with my selfie stick and I blah, 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 blah uh, on my topic. And if you watch the early ones, they're all halting and lame and uh, 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 lots of, uh, um, um, I, oh, you know, all, all, and people loved it. They loved the fact that I was unpolished and unforgiving in my criticisms of the industry that I worked in and told them why I was doing what I was doing and um, was willing to just go out there and say, hey, this is me, this is my beliefs. And if I had nine people watch, I was thrilled to bits because I knew that if they watched the whole video, they were interested in my topic. And for me, traditional marketing doesn't work anymore. It's broken. It's a broken model because they broke their trust with the public. And because of that, we all see ads from all the big guys and we think they're lies. And for the most part, they probably are. And so we don't, you don't, but you see an ad for this company or that company or this appliance or that uh, candy or it doesn't matter what. And you don't trust it anymore. But what you do trust is when that guy who watched my video, those nine guys who watched my first videos, and by guys, I mean guys, gals, you know, uh, young people, old people, it doesn't matter. And they listened to the whole thing. They then went to the dog park and they used that in a conversation. And that reinforced within my community, my values, and the fact that I was the person to go to for the niche that I serve. And so my best marketing wasn't done by me and it wasn't paid for. It was done because I brought my voice to the community and some people, very few were willing to learn or were willing to listen.
and through that learned some of my values and some of my perspectives and then hopefully shared those within the dog park now what was really also really important was that i was there as a business ready to reinforce that and so i looked for opportunities within my community to market appropriately to my community and what i meant mean by that is I, uh, you know, ran a pet food store, Growlies, for 15 years, sold it successfully, uh, am now retired. Before that, I was CEO of a software company, and on my bio, I wrote that I was, uh, it went from software CEO to dog food delivery boy and couldn't be happier. And then before that, I worked in mental health. I worked in sales, actually. I worked in sales. I worked in uh, marketing for IBM. But before that, I worked over a decade in, with uh, schizophrenic, chronically ill schizophrenic men. And so I learned the human stuff early in my career before I learned marketing, which was um, is every aspect of your business, by the way. Marketing is everything and sales is part and parcel. Sales relies on marketing, but sales is not marketing. You know, uh, I know that's a confusing thing, but, you know, when I started with IBM, the sales guys there had me reading like neuro-linguistic programming stuff, NLP, um, Tony, think Tony Robbins, you know, he's able to get you to go, yeah, yeah. They also had me reading things like Sun Tzu's Art of War, because that's how they saw it, right? So that it was you against the, the, the masses who didn't know anything about you. And, and then I moved from that to uh, uh, small software sales, business to business. Uh, um, and then I eventually, because ultimately the CEO of a software company often is either the techiest or the salesiest. And I ended up being the salesiest, right? So, um, and, and, then, and, and then left that high uh, stress environment uh, to go to, uh, you know, open our little pet food store, which ended up being phenomenal. It was the best move I ever made, doing something I was passionate about. So because of that history, some of the things I did, I think, were unusual in the retail market that I was servicing. For instance, we, we, I didn't really believe in print advertising. I tried it a whole bunch of times. And it was, it was sad to me how little recognition I got from local media to do anything. Um, and so, so for instance, I advertised with a whole bunch of lifestyle type magazines locally, um, tried, the, tried many of them. And I was always a firm believer to not have short-term contracts with these guys. So I'd always have, sign up for a minimum of a year because if you're in like a magazine, uh, lifestyle magazine, um, niche magazine towards your industry, whatever it be, um, if you do it once, it's you're throwing your money away. If you do it a whole bunch of times, you're reinforcing your message with the values of that publication, uh, because the people who read it generally read it regularly or see it regularly at the dentist's office, doctor's office, and so on. And, um, and they keep seeing you. That's the whole point behind marketing is they keep seeing you. They keep feeling you. They keep easing that introduction. Um, uh, every time they see you. And so, but for all the, and I, I mean it, thousands of dollars I spent with local publications, they didn't give me an inch of editorial time. And I felt that was unfair. So, so your, your uh, local magazines uh, for business or your local magazines for lifestyle or your, I, I, for me, they didn't work at all. 
They had no interest, even though I felt that what I did was lifestyle, in no way would they give me an inch of their editorial. And so uh, the salesperson would be, oh, I can't influence editorial, but I'm going to gun for you, Neil. We're going to get you in there. Just buy this contract. You know, and they never did. Never did. It was a waste of my time and money. And I'll tell you, nobody ever in 15 years came in and said, I saw you in this ad, in this magazine. In 15 years, thousands of dollars spent. And I'm not saying that that medium doesn't work for some. For my business, it didn't work. And I learned that over 15 years. And darn it, I would still probably try because I'm a fool. But what did work for me was finding things locally where people could just see my brand over and over. So for instance, we used bus benches in our neighborhood. So you go up and down the street in Langford. That's where we are in the 13 municipalities that make up Victoria. Um, Langford is one of those. And our store was in Langford. And uh, you could drive up and down the street and you see, you saw our brand on bus benches. Now we couldn't afford the bus shelters, they're bigger business. They're the large national chains buy those. But you know who buys the benches? Real estate agents. It's all real estate agents <laughs> and like, I don't know, bin companies. And me, it was, and, and I did bright and colorful and reinforcing messages. And you drive up and down our street and you saw our brand all over the place. And then you saw our store, which is a big, bright, beautiful sign. And it, all of that was done on purpose in order to amplify our brand so that when people were asking about the kinds of things we did and somebody at the park would, was one of the nine people who listened to my video that week said Growlies, they, they were like, oh, I know them. I've seen them on the park bench. I've seen them, um, you know, I've, I've driven by their store five times because they have that big, bright, beautiful sign right on the corner. I was a big believer in signage and just being in the community. So we, for instance, sponsored poo bags. And the problem with that program was we should have been stricter about how often the city who was we had contracted with um, emptied the poo bag containers. Mm -hmm. So when the poo bag containers were full, who did they call? They didn't call the city. They called us and complained to us that it was full of poo bags. And so when we, they, we went to renew and they, and I was like, well, then you have to show me the schedule you're gonna empty the containers with because, um, and they said they had no control over what the city did around the emptying of the, the receptacles that I was paying to have my name on. And I said, I can't do it. You're gonna ruin my name within the community. You're not gonna help. Right. And so you have to try many things in order to amplify your message. But I ultimately believe the primary thing, other than just reinforcing my, at the store level, at the retail level, and by the way, we're all in retail, whether it's retailing to business or retailing to consumers. Um, when I go to buy a store, that's a retailer. Or when I go to buy a car, that's a retailer. When I go to buy a cell phone, that's a retailer. Those, by the way, are the worst retail experiences on the planet. Um, but, uh, and they should look at that, like their retail experiences are so broken. It's insane to me how badly they can do and still remain in business. So I see that when I'm out there today, everybody selling something is retailing. And 
you have to think of it in that way. Um, every aspect of everything we do affects the response by the customer within your retail environment. So um, one of the things I trained all my people on were every time somebody walks in the store, greet them. Uh, thanks for coming in. If I can help at all, let me know. How many stores have you walked into, Alan, where you walk in and you're completely ignored? Oh, almost all. And that is so inappropriate because you're going into a retail environment. The one thing they should offer is to help. That's it. And people always, because it's unusual, always would say, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And they weren't. So you let them wander around the store for a minute and ask them again, because all we're doing is, again, reinforcing your values, right? And so going back to my original point, I think that the internet is ultimately the great equalizer in small business to medium-sized business and large business. And so what I mean by that is articles reinforcing your message, videos reinforcing your message. Many of these things could be done very inexpensively, much more inexpensively than that magazine ad, much more in inexpensively than that internet ad, because, oh my God, Google can eat up all the money you throw at them showing ads and never getting you business over and over and over and over again, because they have billions of customers and you don't need that many. And so having good articles, having good content, building videos, reinforcing your brand and actually having a damn brand. It's amazing to me how many businesses are out there that don't have a brand and then don't necessarily even own the brand that they, they work under. And so, for instance, when we started and we came up with the name Growlies for our business, first thing I did was a USPTO and a Canadian trademark search. Am I, am I starting my business under somebody else's name? And then when I found out I wasn't and that those trade that trademark was available in Canada, what the first thing I did was I registered it. What? It was like a few hundred dollars cheaper than that magazine ad. And then I owned my name. So nobody can come to me years later and say, hey, because previously my trademark had been owned. Growlies was the term I owned. I owned the word Growlies for pet food retail and a, as a brand of pet food products or pet products. And so we used treats. We made uh, pepperonis. We made cookies, you know, all under the Growlies brand. And then we also had Growlies the store. And so... Pepsi had owned it at one point. I think they had a chocolate bar called Growlies. Um, McCain, McCain. So McCain, the, the Bronfmans, isn't that the Bronfmans? Um, they owned it once and they had Growlies French fries. And then a pet food place in Vancouver owned it at one point, but they went bankrupt. And so the only hurdle we ran into was that pet food company. And we had to contact their lawyer who then said, no, the company was liquidated and that asset was uh left abandoned and so we finally got it um, but until we got it i didn't put up a sign other than that i invested any large amounts of money in until i knew that i owned my brand and so own your brand own your domain oh my gosh how many people do you know that are in good viable strong businesses and send to a Shaw email address or a TELUS email address or a Gmail email address. What the heck is that all about? I'm sorry, 
but you should own your domain and reinforce your brand with your domain. And so it should be from us, it was customers at growlies.ca. And I even regionalized it because growlies.com was owned by a former restaurant in Alberta, I want to say. And the guy wanted like 10 grand. I'm like, I don't have to pay you 10 grand for a domain. There's 37 TLDs. I could do growlies.biz, growlies.ca, growlies.ltd, growlies.whatever, and still build my business without giving you $10,000 for a word. You pick and choose your, your battles, right? And so ultimately, I think that investing in online presence, content, that you then reinforce within your retail environment. And I do mean, I don't care what you do. You are retailing. There is some point you have a retail environment, whether that be the coffee shop, your home office, uh, a business office, whatever. You're getting the client in and you're signing a piece of paper or you're transferring money or you're doing something. And sometimes it's the client's home where you go to them but that's your retail environment. That's where you're doing your business. And in that retail environment, we used all the content that we created with guys like Jason, uh, Jason Finnerty. He, 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 for instance, when for us, we did a lot of education. 15 years, we, we were in business. When we started, nobody knew about fresh foods for pets in our neighborhood. Maybe 11 people. Like, not enough to be our customer base, right? And so we went to smart people who knew how to do things better than we did. Specialists, right? Much like we were becoming specialists in what we did, we went to specialists in, in writing. We went to specialists in graphics. We went to specialists in online presence. Uh, we went to specialists in social media and we asked for their advice. And sometimes their advice was gobbledygook and foolish. And sometimes they were amazing. Now, for instance, Jason was amazing. So for him, I wrote a basic El Stupido introduction to what we did. And Jason made it amazing. He wrote it. He took my El Dumbo stuff and wrote it out. And I was like, oh, my God, that's really smart. I really like that. I want more of that. And so we actually turned that into the handout we gave every customer. So another thing I firmly believed in is sampling. If, for instance, what your business is, is intellectual property. So when I ran the software company, we gave a 30-day free trial. When I ran the a pet food company, we gave free samples. When um, we were at IBM, I don't think they did anything for free. They're selling to governments, man. I'm sure there was somewhere in the back, there was some stuff going on around dinners? I don't know. So they were lovely. I learned so much. I didn't work with them that long, but I learned, uh, I, I, I worked with them long enough to know that I needed to get out of the, that rat race so that when they invited me to move to the marketing department that they ran out of, I don't know, Truro, Nova Scotia or something like that. I was like, no, nah, I like Victoria, BC better. I, I don't even know Truro. And I, I know that I like Victoria and mainly because they have winter and we don't, but I, I, so, but I knew I needed to get out of that rat race, but I learned so much from them and I can never say anything negative about them, but and not for legal reasons, by the way. Um, <laughs> but because I actually believe I had a really positive experience at every point, 
I learned that sampling, and I, I guess we did sample there because we would often show them that we could do through the RFP process. So you do do free samples, by the way, in government, business to government, but sample, sample, samples. It was always about samples and whether you're a flooring company and you're bringing samples to the house so they can see the, the parquet you're selling or you're a, a drapery company and you're showing them the drapes. That's, those are samples. For me, samples were dog foods and dog treats. Once you give them something, it's a cyclical relationship thing, right? So people came in and I was free with my knowledge and I was free with the, my printouts of information so that they could do the research because I had the type of business where they wanted to do research on things. Um, and uh, they had samples so that they could take home and see that their dog loved what I was offering. I firmly believe that giving a little bit away free helps build your business. Tony Robbins does that. Otherwise, I never would have heard, heard of the guy. I never, I never bought a Tony Robbins course. But you know what? That guy gives so much away for free. If that's quite inspiring, that makes me think maybe someday I should buy a Tony Robbins course. And if I have somebody who needs some kind of inspiration, I might say, hey, you ever heard of this Tony Robbins guy? I think that um, there's a whole bunch of ways we can amplify the small presence. And the internet really is the key to that. And using guys like Jason to do writing, using people he may know who do graphics, those kinds of things are the things that really we're going to get the best bang for our buck. And all the things we do in magazines or in bus, bus benches, by the way, the best hit I ever had was radio. People walked in the very day that my first ad on radio I went up. People walked in and said, I heard, on you, heard you on the radio. What's, why is my cat an obligate carnivore? As a person who did marketing, I wish everything was like that, where you knew, where people said, oh, I, I heard of you here. Because people never tell. You can take half of your money and throw it at A and half of your money and throw it at B, and you won't know which of the two paid off ever. You know, people on the internet are screaming right now, listening to this, going, I can give you metrics. Really? With all the bots and everything out there, you can't, eh? We did all the Googles and the, the, all the ad brights and the pay, you know, uh, advertising networks online. I, I never knew that they were paying out or not. The only way I found to successfully build traction for a small business really was the internet reinforcing with local things, local branding, um, reinforcing with, oh man, I gave away a lot of t-shirts for people to wear at the dog park. I probably gave away hundreds of t-shirts. And the greatest thing is they're wearing them at the dog park with a healthy dog. Right. Because in marketing, and oh, I'm circling back to my original point. In marketing, the only people we trust are people. The only things we trust are people. So when I say I went to a, a and B uh, car lot, and I got the best car and the best retail um, experience buying a car, people believe me. But if, if they're on a bus shelter saying we have the best retail experience for buying a car, I don't believe them. Building evangelists, building uh, people who will uh, proselytize your brand, um, who will go to the dog park who will go to at the poker table, uh, who will go to 
uh, and, and when p your topic comes up, they're going to say, well, that's the guy. That's who you need to talk to. That's who you want. And I had no idea the power of what I was doing until I went to a trade show in Las Vegas and had a bunch of people coming up and saying how much they love my videos. I'm like, what? I'm in Victoria, BC. I'm one lame ass store. What are you even talking about? And they're like, oh, we watch them all. We share them amongst our friends. We blah, blah, blah. They're me with a selfie stick talking. And so my point is, they don't have to be well-produced. They don't have to be an amazing spokesperson. They don't have to be scripted because I've never picked up a script. They just have to be there. And they have to be genuine. They have to be uh, to the point or stay on topic. As you can see, I don't always do that. Be regular. Having a schedule to them um, helps. I was never very good about that. But I did post two or three times every month. I tried to do weekly. I often failed. And I think the more regular you could do it, the better it is. If you could afford to spend 15 minutes a day being a talking head online, you will build a better fan base than I did trying to do it weekly and missing occasionally. But clearly you had more than nine people watching your videos then if you had people in Las Vegas coming up to you. But that comes down to those metrics again, dude. Yeah. Because I'm trying to be on multiple platforms, right? So I was on Instagram, IGTV, Google Plus. Google Plus, yeah. Nowadays I'd be on TikTok and YouTube for sure because actually it's probably the biggest audience. And the nice thing about YouTube was I used them as my hosting platform for the videos. So I didn't have to pay for bandwidth because I'm a cheapskate. So I could just embed them into my website. But the main place I had all my stuff was on my website. And every time I posted a video, I had it transcribed so that because Google has no idea as Google owns the largest video platform in the world, still doesn't know what's in your video, still relies on humans to understand what's in a video. So to help them, I had every video I ever did transcribed and posted underneath my video. Mm. And that helps people who are um, have accessibility problems as well. So it's actually helps with the audience. But more importantly, on my little website, it helped with SEO because it gave fresh content every week that I posted a video. There was now a new, two days later, there was a video on my website with a full transcription. And that transcription, I could easily take all those transcriptions today and use somebody's services like Jason's services to turn that into a book. And then further reinforce, because apparently people on radio only talk to you if you published a book. So I, I could easily have taken my, all my transcriptions, turned them into different chapters on books, published a stupid self book, given it away to my audience and said, here's a book you can have for free again with the giveaway, which eases the burden of entry into your business, into your retail environment in order to purchase your goods. Talk to me briefly about Pet Fooled. Oh, okay. So this, I'm in the middle of, you know, what are we, uh, probably eight years in. And <clears throat> this is actually really risky. And I love the fact that I was able to pull it off. And so 
this this documentary film had come out called Pet Fooled. And it's a documentary um, including two of the vets who I had been following for years, uh, Dr. Karen Becker and um, Dr. Janet, oh, I forget Dr. her name, her last name off the top of my head. I apologize, I'll remember in a bit. Um, but so these two vets, uh, uh, exceptional, um, what you would call holistic veterinarians, right? And so they were key in this documentary talking about the value of a fresh food addition or fresh food to a pet food diet, as well as the industry had this veil of trust around it that they didn't necessarily deserve. And they also talked about how heavily regulated they are as an industry while not being regulated at all. Mm. So they were self-regulated. And when self-regulated, an industry does its best to stop new people from coming in. They don't regulate their bad practices. And so um, this film did a great job of showing that. Now, I am not in any way versed in Hollywood or filmmaking or, you know, that's all a whole different world to me, right? And so I'm like, how do I get hold? So I figured out how to email the filmmaker. And I emailed, his name's Cole Harrington. And we've become very good friends. He's an amazing human being. And so Cole, I emailed Cole and said, I own this pet food store and I love what you do. And I want to bring your film and show it to my community. And how can I get permission from you to air the film in my community? I want to rent a theater and I want to air that film and show as many people as possible that the industry isn't the be beautiful, wonderful thing, teddy bear that everybody thinks it is. And he's like, uh, that's awesome, right? So not only was he surprised, he was open to the message. So then I'm like, well, now I'm, I'm this guy, I don't think small. So I paid for Cole. Now, thankfully, he donated his time. He didn't have to do that. I was actually willing to pay him. But he, I did pay for his flight and his lodgings to come out to Victoria, BC. And I rented a movie theater. And I did a whole bunch of social media. And I took to, uh, the tickets to the, I rented the movie theater. I had them print out, I printed out all the tickets. I had to pay for all that. Um, and then I went to every pet food store in Victoria and gave them two tickets. Almost none of them attended. Even though it was complete, I did not make the film and it was completely charitable. I was not charging anybody any money. As a matter of fact, any money we did fundraise went to, to uh, Rome, which was returning owners to animals missing. Basically, they help you find your lost dog and cat or bird. They're an exceptional local organization, not for profit. Um, that, so we, any monies we raised, I donated to them. It was not a for-profit thing. So we rented the theater, watched the film. We had a decent turnout, not as good as I had hoped, because of course, you know, my ego's wrapped up in these things and I'm like, we're going to have a full theater. No, we're not. 
no, no, you're not. No, you're not. Your, your competitors see you as a competitor and they are not going to come support your event. This is what I learned. It's okay because the people who were interested were really interested. And then what started happening in my business when people went to their stores and started asking about my category, which was raw, even if they sold one or two brands, they would say, oh, you need to go to Growlies. So the big pet food chains in my near me sent people to me. All your big chains, they didn't do as much training of their staff within my category, within my niche as I did. So when people had questions, they sent them to me. So the risk paid off. Oh my God, in spades. Yeah. Um, and so that's the kind of thing I always forever then on looked out for. What's happening within the community that's bigger than I am that I can then utilize to build my own brand. And so now the, the next film by Cole, I'm the executive producer. Unfortunately, I've sold Growlies, but I still love what Cole does. I still feel... He still meets my values. Uh, I'm still doing everything I can to help him. I still have a community online of over 10,000 people that I answer questions about raw pet food to. That's all volunteer. So I still do it, but I don't uh, advertise growlies through them. Right. <laughs> but I still believe in what they do. I still believe that there's, there's a need for that niche to be fulfilled within communities. And, um, and I still feel that, that that needs to be built. And I hope that the new owners of that organization do that. But when, when I took the risk and invited Cole and rented the theater and all that stuff, my wife thought I was crazy. And, I, and one of the things I did was I went to all my suppliers and I invited them. And so the ones who were interested in supporting my business and this event flew out at their own expense. We had a big uh, meet and greet dinner with all of them uh, that I catered and I rented the hall to do that. And then they all came to the movie and, uh, and that reinforced my relationship with all of my suppliers. And so when they were looking to do something, who did they contact? They now contacted me. Even though I was one store, I was now an important store. So I used it to reinforce my relationships within the business, within the industry that I was serving. And I used it to build my credibility with the community that I was serving. Right. And uh, there's probably a dozen stores I could walk in into today and they would still know who I was. And then all because of Pet Fooled. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, taking those big risks and doing things that you think are bigger than you is absolutely worthwhile, but know that you might not get immediate gratification from those things. I'm not a big believer in immediate gratification. I don't know how people take a business, an online business and do you know, $30 million in sales in six months. I don't know how they did that. For me, it was about building community, building an audience, uh, building my brand, uh, taking big risks like doing like I did with Pet Fool. Right. Well, it's kind of going to lead me into my next question here. So like, what, what are some things that small business owners can do to create a business as opposed to just buying themselves a job? Right. Well, you know, when you get a franchise, you're, the problem 
I had. So we, before we opened Growlies, we looked at franchises. We looked at buying franchises. And the problem I had is I would be muted. I wouldn't be allowed to say a lot of the things I ended up saying. I would have to follow everything that they said. I would have to do what they, they I, I, I'm the dog on their chain instead of the other way around, right? And so um, I looked at all the things that I wanted to do and I saw that basically, like you say, I was buying myself a job. They still owned the business. And I didn't, I wasn't a fan of that. And so depending on your skill sets or the niche you want to enter, I am a big fan of, you know, doing a little research, a little legwork ahead of time and owning your brand, doing that trade USPTO and Canadian trademark search, do a search for Canadian trademark search in Google, the first or second hit and don't hit click on the ads because those people will try and sell you something. Click on the one that's, you know, the first organic hit and that'll take you to the Canadian government's website on trademark search and USPTO. Um, so uh, that's the patent and trademark office in the United States will show you what big American players may also own that trademark. And so go type in the name things that you have uh, ideas for into that. And then go and see if the domains are available. And if the .com is taken, who cares? All the other TLDs are available. Go with .ninja. It doesn't matter. Um, for instance, we had growlies.pet. So it doesn't have to be .com because all of that's going to matter in your marketing later. But if the .com's taken, go and see if they're using it. Because if they're not using it, you, you can go and easily start up a, a, a growlies.pet. You know, you don't have to be .com anymore. .com is back in the 90s when there were only .com, .net, .org, and .edu, right? And so you don't have to be stuck on any of those anymore. Um, we went with .ca initially. Eventually, the other TLDs came out. I started migrating towards .pet because it's more appropriate to the business. Mm. Um, but those are, the, those are the, the first things you need to do. The other is I, we ran it as what's called a uh, sole proprietorship um, where we were the business initially because we made no money. If we made 50 bucks in a day when we started in the first months, we were doing great. Like we self-funded. We didn't have a big loan from somebody, right? So I ran the software company for the first two years of Growly's existence. So we lived on my wage for the first two years. I worked weekends in Growly's and Joanne worked weekdays, and, um, and we made do. Um, and then when the business was making a little money that it could pay me a wage, then I came in, I left the software company because I didn't need the stress anymore. I wasn't willing to, let the, willing to give, have them give me a heart attack in my 40s. And so I went and as soon as we could afford it, we, we, we went full time. But around that same time is when our business was making enough money to incorporate. So we were sole proprietors until it was making enough that the added accounting fees of incorporation, the tax savings that we would get around that justified the added taxes or the added accounting fees. And uh, thankfully, my wife is very good at things I'm not very good at. 
we're a good partner team team that way. So she was the spreadsheet queen. I don't know a spreadsheet from Adam, but ultimately is find what you believe in, make sure you own what you're going to start. And then, you know, we found the, the smallest little place to work out of and we, and we rented that place and it had been empty. So we went to the landlord and said, how much, blah, blah, blah. And we're like, Ooh, that's expensive. Nowadays, we know that that was in no way expensive. Um, it was a good deal. Uh, but again, taking a risk, right? And we put up a, a, uh, basically a cardboard. I think it was a plywood sign and said, we're Growlies. Because, you know, we knew we owned the name at that point, right? I mean, it was on a shoestring, but the shoestring was a, it was in the thousands. It wasn't, you know, in the ten, uh, you know, 20s or the hundreds. It was in the thousands. It wasn't cheap to start our business. We had to fill a, a 650 square foot place with a bunch of goods and hope people bought them. And then we had to learn the difference between markup and margin. Man, that was a tough lesson to learn when you're selling stuff below your cost of running the store. You know, there's a whole bunch of things to learn, but we learned it over time. We took a whole bunch of risks. And I have to, I, I have to say, I mean, they paid off. But I'm again, I'm not an overnighter. I don't know how people do these things overnight without great amounts of debt. And anytime we ever got any money, we put it into Growlies and we grew it. And, um, and, and you're like, it's just a money sink. But eventually we were smart enough to learn how to sell it. We could have liquidated it and gotten almost as probably more than, well, we, if we had liquidated, we definitely would have gotten more than we put in. But by selling it, we did better uh, otherwise. And by reinvesting, we could have opened another store, but instead we owned our own locations. So we reinvested in, we created a holding company and we reinvested in purchasing the places we did business out of. And that did really good for us. So, because we still own those places. And so um, making the right decisions for you, because sometimes, you know, Opening a second store, we could have, instead of purchasing the store we were in, opening a second store probably would have made us, you know, more cash, but less long-term um, benefits. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, although we might have ended up having a better, a much better sale price by having multiple locations. Um, you know, there's back and forth there in my head. Um, but I think that ultimately long-term, uh, now we have a passive income stream. We get rent from the, the, the warehouse and the, the store. And, um, uh, and I think that just we were in a lucky situation where I was CEO of a software firm making good money um, so that my wife could give up her job at the jail, at the pharmacy at the jail, in order to run the store. We were very uh, lucky and uh, privileged in that way. And I know not everybody has that. And so they might have to go out and get a loan. But then you need to talk to whoever's loaning you that money about some of the things like, you know, how you're going to price your products, how you're going to, you know, go out and you, you do a lot more research than we did, because ours was a passion project and probably a little foolish. Um, you know, nowadays, I would do a lot more research, you know, going into it about, how to price things and what things to bring in and all those kinds of things. Um, then I did, then I would, yeah. I mean, 
just going in and looking at all the businesses and and again with a keen eye on what they all do that you don't need to do what do they all do that's unimportant it's become so ubiquitous it's unimportant to your business that was a key one for our success was finding what was so ubiquitous we didn't need to do it because then we didn't waste any time on it and we didn't become dependent on it. And that, that was the big one for us. And that made us the differentiator. That was the big risk. Right. So if, if, if I can sense. just kind of sum up here, it, it sounds to me like if, if you want to build a successful business, work hard, be genuine, build a community uh, and take risks. Is, does that, yeah. Do you have, before we let you go, Neil, is there any other advice that that you would like to share? Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, they, they say, follow your passions. I think that's kind of crazy. Find the people who can do the things you cannot do that you trust and who do good work and build a good team. Work with the team that you know that you can trust and that can communicate in the way that you communicate. Find that team. Find one of the best things we ever had was we would pull in people who were far more experienced in, in business than us. And we would have them give us advice. And we would listen to that advice. And sometimes we would throw that advice away and be idiots. And sometimes we would listen to that advice. But building a team, like, you know, a, a, in a big business, they would call that your board. In a small business, I didn't have a board. I probably should have had a board, somebody who could hold me to task other than my wife. Thankfully, she was pretty good at that. Um, but having somebody more uh, experienced than yourself in not only the skill sets you do not have, like for instance, for me, it was writing um, and graphics. I did not have those skill sets, but thankfully over time, I was able to build a team that did have those and somebody more experienced in business that you can use as a soundboard. Um, That was key. Being able to pull in other business people who I knew, who I could say, is this as crazy to you as I think it is? Do you think this is as crazy as I think it is? And do you think I might find some success? Now, sometimes those people say no. And you still drive through and it's successful and that's okay. But hearing their perspectives always helped me find the knife's edge of where I was wanting to go, you know? Mm. Uh, uh, Without good advice, from both a team of people who I worked with that didn't, that knew how to do the things I didn't know how to do, as well as the advice of other business people who came before me um, was key uh, to my success. Without those things, without, for instance, Eric Jordan's advice, Eric was, uh, he's, he now runs a gaming software company. Without his advice, um, throughout, the years of working uh, with him uh, at both software companies that I worked with, um, uh, I wouldn't have learned what I learned. And I uh, think that as a mentor, he was exceptional. 
And I hope that someday I can mentor somebody to be as successful as I and he has been. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing I think that all business people need to do when they've had success is go forward and, and help the next generation of, of entrepreneurs to, um, to be their soundboard, to um, uh, bring some rational thought to some, some of the ideas they may have, you know? Right. Uh, uh, the, 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 I think that's, that's what I would say is build a team who can do the things you can't do and, and listen to people who've done it before. So it may be a little bit too early to ask you this question. Uh, you're, you're, you're not even two weeks into this, but what are your plans for, uh, for the future here? Uh, I imagine you're savoring your, your early retirement right now, but look ahead to maybe a few years down the road. Where, where do you think you're going to be? Well, I mean, I, I think one of the things that this uh, last you know, endeavor has taught me is I'm really good at... Um, building brands. And so I may want to, you know, do some work around that, um, assist some companies in building out their brands. And I have some who've already approached me, CBD, um, some retail, um, so on. Uh, but I think that uh, I'm going to play with that, you know, idea. I'm not going to rush into anything. I'm going to see what comes to me or what I can uh, create. Um, I'm going to geek out, man, I'm going to geek out. I'm looking forward to playing with some raspberry pies. Um, and that's not a piece of pie that's filled with raspberries. That's a little tiny little computer that does everything your laptop does, but is this big. And um, I'm really looking forward to because I used to be in computer stuff. Like I used to run a software company and I used to, you know, talk to programmers every day. And so I want to get back into some of that. And then I also want to do art. I want to play with some art in my forest. I got a little acreage in Machosan and uh, I want to, um, I want to do some fun stuff outside with the dogs. So yeah. if, if anybody listening to this uh, would like to pick your brain about uh, today's topic uh, and maybe set themselves up to, uh, to sell their own business, uh, can they reach out to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm happy to talk to anybody, um, you know, see if there's a synergy uh, or, uh, uh, in working together or that we we see a reality there. Um, it's Neil. Uh, I, I spell it N-E-A-L because my mom wanted me to spell my name for everybody for the rest of my life uh, instead of N-E-I-L. Uh, N-E-A-L at uh, N-J-C-H dot L-T-D. That's um, N-J-C-H dot L-T-D. And a uh, nice short domain, uh, again, just geeking out on, uh, on stuff because I used to run a website hosting company back in the 90s. So before GoDaddy. <laughs> well, thank you, Neil, uh, for being with us today. Uh, you've been listening to Neil Cropper, formerly of Growly's Pet Foods. Uh, Neil isn't involved with Growly's anymore, but they can be reached by phone at 250-391-4475, or you can visit them at their store at uh, unit number 118 2871 Jacklin Road in Langford, British Columbia. Uh, thank you, Neil, for being with us. Um, I hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks, so. All right. Thank you for listening to the Talk Local podcast, sponsored by Time to Get Online, makers of fast and affordable websites for tradespeople and small businesses throughout the province and around the world. When you're ready to start building your brand, visit timetogetonline.com.